Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast, a Canadian real estate podcast that shows you how to pay off your mortgage sooner and live well while doing it. Now, here's your host, Sean Cooper. Welcome to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. I'm Sean Cooper, and it's great to be back for another episode. On today's show, I'll be talking to Saxon Funk. Saxon is a Winnipeg-based real estate investor. After graduating from high school, Saxon tried door-to-door selling and selling insurance. He discovered day trading and foreign exchange trading in his early 20s, but despite some success, learned that the activity was just as apt to leave him broke. Ultimately, real estate became his preferred road to financial freedom and helped enable him to pursue other passions. In my interview with Saxon, we discuss metrics to use to determine if a property is a good investment, fostering a good landlord-tenant relationship, and managing rental properties when you're away. Without further ado, here's my interview with Saxon Funk. Hi, Saxon. How are you doing today? Hey, Sean. Doing well. How about you? Pretty good, thanks. Now, you have quite a remarkable story. At one point, you owned an impressive 14 doors. Tell us about your story as it relates to real estate. Well, currently, uh, I I do live in a, a fourplex and I have one condo. We kind of uh, downsized the rest of it, but uh, at the peak, we did have 14 do- uh, doors uh, while I was working full time. My wife and I both worked for a local telecom, and uh, she's also a professional photographer. So it was really busy to be doing that. We found ourselves that uh, it was a little, little too much debt, <clears throat> and I'm sure you know about that because uh, Dave Ramsey came and seeked you out. I know yes. you live pretty much a debt, <laughs> a debt-free life. The way we got to our 14 doors was by reading uh, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Really good book. Um, if your listeners haven't listened to it, um, I do recommend reading it. I think it gives you a good context on how to run a business. And real estate is ultimately a business. And what I liked about it was that it, it was tougher than normal. It should be stable. But if you miss a month's rent, it's not like you can go and sell 30 more books to make up for that missed rent. Uh, it's gone. So you really need to have good cash flow management. And so that was something that kind of drew to me that it was a stable and yes, there were risks, but it was very limited, but you had to make sure that you knew what money was coming in and and how to make it work. And so at one point, my wife and I, because of real estate, we were able to travel a lot and we took a two and a half month vacation in 2014 and uh, we went to Vietnam and Thailand and that's because we had our real estate. And at that time we kind of uh, thought and prayed about it. And we wanted to downsize. And so within six months of not advertising uh, through a realtor, online or anything, we were able to sell two of our properties. The stress level kind of went down, which was good. But currently, as I mentioned, we do have our, our fourplex and our one condo as well. Perfect. Now, you've touched on this a bit in your first answer to the question there. But what first attracted you to real estate and what are some of the metrics that you use to determine if a property is a good investment? I heard that, for example, you're attracted to the Winnipeg market. As an example, when you found out you could buy property at 10% down and you caught the real estate cycle at the right time, but for people not as fortunate as you, maybe you could provide them with some advice. 
Yeah, um, like to say, I definitely wasn't a rocket scientist. We did catch it at the right time, and that, that was a blessing. The only thing I guess I can, in quotes, take credit for, and my wife as well, is that we did move on it. We didn't get analysis paralysis. But I think what got us into real estate, like everybody, is the thought of passive income. Um, I've always done riskier trades. Um, right out of high school, I was day trading uh, commodities and Forex. That didn't go so well. And then um, I, I, I know that's one of your questions later on about the different things that I've done. But I don't have a university education. Definitely not against university. I just found for me that I didn't think I was going to get a return on investment. And you never know what the what the future holds. But so that's one thing that I liked about real estate was that, again, uh, if you have your finances in order, the bank will actually lend you the money. And so my wife and I were able to buy a condo in 2008. We had no full-time job and no down payment for a condo. We took it possession of it August 2008. And as you guys know, the, uh, the recession happened in September when Lehman Brothers uh, folded. And so we were one of the last no-money-down 40-year mortgage types. So what happened is the following February of 2009, my friend and I, we bought a triplex together because he wanted to move into it and and live rent free. He had just become a realtor. Uh, He's still been one. He's actually, I think, 11 years now. He's a broker now. He's done really well for himself. But at that time, he didn't qualify on income and my wife did qualify for income. And so we only needed to put 5% down. We had no money. And my friend was getting married. So his uh, mom had just sent him a check to pay for the photographer. So we actually used that photographer check as our down payment to buy (laughs) that first building. And so we saw him living rent-free for a while. And we owned half the building too. And we figured, why not go and do this? We'd lived in our condo for almost two years at this point. And so in April of 2010, we bought our first triplex. Uh, We sold our condo. I did have to go find some private lending to get the down payment because I knew once I sold my condo that we could do that. I'd actually secured 20% money for this down payment. The time the triplex was 248000 We're talking, I guess this year will be nine years. Uh, properties have definitely gone up since then, but it was still a lot of money to us. And right at the last minute, my dad agreed to lend us uh, 30K at, uh, at prime, which was like three and a half or something like that. But uh, it was nice to be able to have that cheaper money, but we already had the 20% lined up, worst case scenario. We bought that place and moved into it. A year later, we didn't really like the layout. We lived in the basement. And this kind of plays into your question of what to look for in properties. Mm -hmm. Now, one thing that was happening in Winnipeg is that the properties hadn't gone up, but rents had. So the landlords that we were buying property from had really, really depressed rents. So for example... Uh, when we bought this building that we moved into, the rents for a three-bedroom were $671. The rents for a main floor three-bedroom were 750 all utilities in. And then the basement didn't really matter because we were going to live in that one. So as soon as we bought it, we, we did have the tenants leave. Uh, we gave them a notice to renovate the units, which we did. And we were able to increase the rents up to $1,500 per unit. My goodness, that's like double pretty much. Yes, it, it was. And that's what actually made it affordable. And we were making $700 a month while living in the basement, plus mortgage pay down, plus appreciation. So at that point, it actually made sense for us to, to own properties. I would look for something like that now if I was to redo this. Uh, you would want to make sure that you're at least living for free, uh, in my opinion. Um, I don't 
I, if you correct me if I'm wrong, Sean, I think this whole time you've been able to pretty much live mortgage free. Yes. I mean, like with the property that I've lived in, even when I had a mortgage, it was cash flow positive. So even in a worst case scenario, if I became unemployed, I would at least have my, all my expenses taken care of, including the utilities and home insurance and property taxes and the mortgage with my tenants. And that's, that's the exact reason what drew us into this. And then at that point, we, we didn't like the layout. So we ended up buying another fourplex. And I just want to make this clear to all your uh, listeners. We didn't have any financing from friends and family. Um, I know I mentioned that my dad came in at the last minute, but that's just because he pretty much knew that we were going to go borrow 20% money. And he'd already seen us put these deals together. So he figured that he knew that we were going to sell our condo. It was on the market and it did sell within three or four months. And so he knew that his money was guaranteed. And uh, I bring this up not to encourage debt because I'm no longer doing this. But uh, my wife and I, we've always had separate finances. We do our monthly budget. We know each other's finances. It's just that when it came to getting lending, the bank always seemed to treat us better when we had our finances separate. And now I, I don't, uh, this isn't me saying that you and your spouse should have things separate because that's not what I'm trying to say at all, but it did help us to be able to get financing. So what I was able to do was actually gift my wife money so that she could have a down payment to buy the next property. And the triplex that we had bought that we lived in was in my name. So she was able to qualify for the new fourplex and the fourplex that we moved into, the vendor was willing to do a vendor take back. And he gave us $30,000 that was registered as a second mortgage on the triplex that we were moving out of. Well, you don't, you don't and, see vendor take back very often. And just for our listeners, would you be able to explain quickly what vendor take back is? Because they might not understand. Yeah, not a problem. So what a vendor take back means is that let's say the purchase price is 270000 The vendor will actually take personally 30000 in this case as a mortgage. And then the bank would only lend on 240000 And so what this allowed us to do was actually do some really much needed renovations to this. And the way that I made this appealing to uh, the vendor, because as Sean said, it's, it's not something that you see often, especially in a seller's market. And that's what this was. He did take mercy on me, which was nice. He was uh, close to his 70s. We were only 24 at this time. I did sweeten the pot by saying I would give him 10% interest on the 30K. And it was a guaranteed for the first year. And if we hit one day into the second year, he would get full 10% interest. And so it was very appetizing to him to do that. And so what we did is on the triplex that my friend had lived in, the very first one, we ended up refinancing that building to pay off this loan. So it was kind of nice to have that all dominoed up that way. And then we, we bought another triplex and a condo after that. That's what I liked about real estate is that you could get creative. If people trusted you, they'd be willing to work with you. And then you had this physical asset as well uh, that made it easier to raise capital uh, at the same time. But uh, in my case, I just found that the debt payments were getting a little, little out of hand. We were blessed that we kept asking for line of credit increases. And so we were able to increase our lines by quite a bit. So we did have cheap capital when we had to fix the property. But I think some people get mixed up. They think cheap is free and you never have to pay it back. And I really don't like having outstanding money. So it was, uh, it was nice when we sold those properties to be able to clear up all those lines and then do what Dave Ramsey uh, preaches and have a three to six month emergency fund. And then we started investing in the stock market. Uh, you know, we try to do 10 to 15% of our income every year uh, towards retirement for that. Oh, so many great pieces of information and tips there. So thank you for that. 
Moving on to the next question, as you alluded to earlier, you've tried various things out, door-to-door selling, selling insurance, day trading, foreign exchange trading, and the list goes on. But ultimately, you chose real estate as your preferred road to financial freedom. Why is that? And what does financial freedom look like for you? I would have to say that God put real estate in my life to ensure that I knew what long-term savings and wealth looked like. Uh, I I can be a bit of a gambler. I know not to bet the house. But this definitely forces you to have a long-term savings plan. And so I would say the way that it looks like financial freedom is not having to do something that you don't want to. And that doesn't mean, I mean, I think everybody works. I know that you're still working, Sean, and I'm sure there's times as a mortgage broker that there's some tasks that you don't like, but ultimately you love this field and you're able to do it. And so one of the things that I really wanted to try two years ago was doing drop shipping. And it's not an easy thing. And because of that, as soon as my son was born, which is I've got a 21 month old son, my wife took maternal leave and I took paternity leave. So I got eight months of pay. And so I went and rented an office and was able to start this business. And it's because I knew that our our living costs were taken care of. And that was a really, really big thing. And so we ended up, both my wife and I, we both left our corporate jobs. We were blessed that we had a defined benefit plan. And I know you know all about that, Sean. (laughs) And because interest rates were low, and that's another thing. When you know about real estate, other investments tend to make sense. So if you know what capital, uh, like a cap rate is, then that really helps when it comes to when I left my job, I knew that interest rates were low. And so if interest rates were low, then my buyout had to be bigger. So it was a safer return because I had more information. And then I was able to take that money and invest it for the long term because it's locked in until I'm 55. But I've been able to choose what funds I want those in. And so it's real estate's allowed us to make a lot of choices that look risky, not be as risky and feel like we're a little bit more in control than maybe uh, some other people feel. No, oh, I mean, that's a great point. And, and just curious, in the future, in terms of your financial freedom, where would you like to see yourself at age 55? Or like, what does your financial freedom look like? You mentioned earlier that you were able to travel for two and a half months. But is that really your dream to be able to travel and work while you're on the road? No. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny, as you have kids, you realize traveling is a lot more cumbersome than it used to be. And I'm really grateful that uh, we've been able to do a lot of traveling in in the past. And if we wanted to, we know that we could. But it's nice to know that we now choose not to. Last year was great. I had a conference in Mexico. And uh, my wife and I and my seven-month-old son at the time, we were able to go to Mexico for five weeks. And that was a really big thing, um, that we could choose to go together. I could work. And uh, we also knew that our real estate was kind of uh, being looked after at the same time. But uh, for me, I think financial freedom is just knowing that there's money coming in, the bills are covered, you can be generous, and you can take risks when the times come. And that, that's really important to me to be able to always be able to, to seize the opportunity. Like I, I don't want a recession to happen. People lose jobs during recessions. And, you know, it doesn't mean that we're not impenetrable. I would hate, God forbid, to have something take place where we, uh, you know, weren't in the same uh, financial situation. But I do get excited about a recession taking place because bank stocks, for example. Well, if you ever look at the, the big five that we have in Canada, every time they go in half, they tend to rebound within two years. And the dividends still pay quite well. 
So I, I get excited knowing that we can take those kind of opportunities and I have fun with that. So, so to me, financial freedom is having extra cash to be able to take opportunities. Great. I couldn't have put it better myself. Now, Saxon, you've been living in your multifamily dwelling for eight years now and investing the difference. Walk us through your journey. I think that the, the main thing is looking at challenging opposition to, to your own ideas. And that would be, for example, I really started gung-ho with uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And I think there's a lot of value in that. But for me, I was feeling discontent and un, unsecure with, with all the debt. So it was really nice to be able to then have a Dave Ramsey perspective come in. And it really shook up my, my idea. And so I would really say that it allowed us to have a foundation of, yes, we have real estate, but now let's get out of debt. Let's plan how that looks. And so it allowed me to become more grateful for my job and not be so disdained at it, but also knowing that there was an exit at some time. And so I would really recommend if your listeners don't know who Dave Ramsey is, um, they should go to DaveRamsey.com. I have no affiliation with him at all, other than the fact that his principles have really uh, shaped my wife and I's journey. That's great to hear. And he's written several best-selling books, so it doesn't seem like you're the only one that's a fan of his either. <laughs> no. So besides being a homeowner, as you mentioned, you're also a property investor as well as landlord. So how's your experience been as a landlord and any tips to help foster a good landlord-tenant relationship? Yeah, um, I, I think whether you're living in the building or not, it's always the golden rule, right? Do unto others as you have them do unto yourself. You do have a business to run, but that doesn't mean that you have to be rude about it. And I think being firm but polite is, is a really good tactic. And so it all starts with your vetting portion of it. Now, we use Kijiji in Winnipeg. That's a big thing. Uh, I know Facebook Marketplace is becoming a bigger one. Uh, and so next time we, God forbid, have an opening, I will be trying that as well. But the way that I do it is I have a write-up of the property, and then I tell them what I'm looking for in a tenant. I give them two options. I'm showing the place at Thursday at 5.30 or Sunday at 2.30. Please reply with what time works best for you. And then I also want all those answers from the questions that I asked above. So when somebody replies to me, then I know that they're able to email and communicate. Also, I'm not just letting them pick the day that I'm going to be there. So this really sets that, you know, that your time is being respected and you're going to respect their time as well. One thing that I don't do is I actually don't give the address of the property uh, in the first communication. I give the street, I give a picture of it. But this way here, um, if somebody emails me and doesn't answer all the questions or pick a time, just like everybody, I'm pretty busy. So it's not that I'm rude. I just don't have time to reply because you didn't reply the way that we agreed that we would exchange replies. So if they do, when they do reply with the time, we'll say Thursday at 5.30, and then they say, here's where I work, and this is why I'm moving. That's a big thing. I do ask, why are you moving? Because if they start bashing their landlord, you, you probably aren't going to have a good relationship. You know, I understand that we're moving because we now have a baby and we need a two-bedroom. We're only in one bedroom or I'm re uh, relocating from work, that kind of stuff. That's what you're really looking for is how do they present their challenges and, and how is that going to work? And so once they've done that, I then reply with the address and then I give them a phone number that they have to call one hour before they come to, to confirm that they're showing. And if I don't receive that phone call, then I won't show up. And what that allows us to do is we now know that we can communicate through either Facebook Messenger or through email. And we can also make a phone call as well. 
And I've just found that nine out of 10 times that that really just makes sure that I'm getting a, a good 10. How often do you find that the people don't even make it through those first two phases? You know what, I'd say like 80% of people will respond in the proper way. And then I will say that there's probably a 70% to 80% chance that they actually show up to the, the meeting. Great. And I'm just curious, have you ever had an unfortunate situation perhaps with a, a tenant or any stories where you did all the right things in terms of screening, but it didn't work out for whatever reason? And how did you deal with that situation? Yeah, I mean, I'm definitely not perfect. The system isn't perfect. But I will say that the biggest problems I ever had have been when I don't follow that system. Like I've had tenants that have caused a lot of problems and that's just because of the size of when you have 14 units and you've been doing it for 10 years, you just, you have those outliers and they are outliers. So I don't want to scare anybody from doing it. If you're looking at buying a duplex, live just like you're doing, Sean, the chances are you're really not going to end up with a tenant that you don't want to live with, especially if you, you do put in uh, guidelines like what I have said or what Sean said in the past or some other readings that you have read. But I would say I had one tenant and they were, they were really good. They had some personal struggles and I think we all do. And in three and a half years, there, there was a, an issue with a, a substance abuse issue. But because of, and I don't want to say the system, but I knew that they had a job. I knew that they could communicate. So even through those struggles, they communicated the whole time. So even though it was a completely uncomfortable situation, this person was still able to communicate and they were able to stay there for three and a half years. And that worked out really well. Now, as you mentioned earlier, you've done your fair share of traveling, maybe not as much as you used to, but unlike passive investments, such as ETFs and mutual funds, real estate is an active investment. How do you manage your rental properties when you're away from home? Well, I guess there's two parts I'm going to touch on that. One is, and I know, Sean, you went on the, the quest of being uh, mortgage-free, which, which is a high honor that you, you've done that. But one thing that you, you chose not to do and that you could have done, and I'd say this for your other listeners as well, the reason why my wife and I have been able to do a lot of traveling is that we didn't have this mortgage payment. So if you imagine you know, $1,500 a month, that's eighteen grand a year. You can do a lot with eighteen grand a year when it's not going towards rent or going towards mortgage. I collaborated with you, I think it was March of 2015, there was an article that I wrote on your blog called You're Richer Than You Think. Yes. And that was a really exciting one because I had written that while I was on a three-week vacation in Italy with my wife. Uh, we did uh, Italy and uh, France. And those aren't cheap vacations, but because of the fact that we didn't have these housing costs, they allowed us to take those three weeks and really maximize those three weeks. And however you want to spend your time, if you want to do it in the backyard or if you want to go camping, that's awesome as long as you're recharged. But having the options to do things differently is really nice. And that has been really good about real estate. With regards of managing it, we live in a great digital age now. Um, your tenants can email you if you want to be able to choose to take that. I have a 1-800 number and it's a, a local number too. So our area code is 204 or 431, but it really is a, a VoIP number. And what's nice about that is when I leave, I can have a friend look after that. And I just reroute the number. Instead of it going to me, it goes to my friend. And so when a tenant does call, and if they do, and it's very rare, and God willing, now that I've said that, hopefully it doesn't <laughs> mean that I'll get a call now. But uh, if you do get that call, your tenants don't know any difference because someone's picked up the call. 
and then they can also email you as well or text or whatever you guys have agreed to Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp, that kind of thing. So it's, it's really not that big of a deal. And there's also great things that you can do now too. Uh, if you've got a single family house or a duplex, you can put internet in there and allow one of your tenants to have internet for free. And I say this because now you can put up cameras that are all run off of Wi-Fi. Um, I have water sensors and those things have saved me time in and time again. And they're not that expensive. Um, I use a system called Insteon and it's 40 bucks for the water sensors. I think the hub's like 150, something like that. But this March, I got uh, an email alert or one of those push notifications that my hot water tank had gone. And within six hours, we had replaced the hot water tank. And within 10 minutes of it going off, the water was turned off. And this is a really big thing because this happened, I believe it was like at 10 a.m. on a weekday. So my tenant wasn't home. So traditionally, the way that would have looked is they would have come home at six and this water would have ran for eight hours. And who knows what kind of damage would have taken place. And then we have insurance and people want to leave and whatnot. So uh, I do recommend. Yeah. Oh, it, it becomes a really nasty thing. Those little things, they may sound expensive by, oh, I'm going to give a tenant rent. Well, then include it in your rent and just charge a bit more. And that $40 apparatus saved me probably 1000 to $3,000. Now, just wrapping up, you've given us a lot of great pieces of advice throughout the podcast. But if you could summarize it, what would be your top three tips for others looking to follow in your footsteps and invest in real estate, whether it's a principal residence or starting a real estate empire themselves? So I'm going to say it was a double-edged sword. Um, I'd be very hypocritical if I said multifamilies don't work. I will refer back to, I, I do think Ramsey's uh, solutions are, are valid and they've definitely helped us. I would say if you're going to do the multifamilies or even if you're going to live in a duplex or, or whatnot, make sure that you have three to six months of emergency fund put away beside your down payment. Because as you know, Sean, homeownership, things do happen and there's no landlord for us to go and turn to to ask for help. You, you've, you've got to pay for it. And so you want to make sure that it's, uh, as Ramsey says, that your home is a blessing, not a curse. So I, I would say that make sure that you have three to six months emergency fund for that. I do really recommend that you look into putting away for your retirement because I'm assuming most of the demographic that's listening to this podcast is probably 45 and under. And that's a lot of time to, to still make up for retirement. I mean, you can put away every month for 30 years and still be a millionaire outside of your real estate. And it's always nice to have a balanced, uh, balanced return. I prefer the S&P 500. Um, I really like the mutual funds Mauer. Uh, you can buy those with Quest Trade. Again, I'm not affiliated with any of these things. But um, and I think I also mentioned Mauer in my, uh, that article that I wrote, uh, You're Richer Than You Think, that can be found on your blog post. The third thing is definitely have direction of where you want to go. Don't just buy doors to buy doors. And I think I got caught up in that. I had fun with it. But there was a part where my ego took over and it just became aggregate wealth and then it just became stressful. And so knowing why you want to do something, I think, is more important than actually doing it itself. So that, that would probably be my, my three steps. Saxon, it's been great having you on the show today. Before I let you go, is there anything of interest that you're working on that you'd like to share with our listeners? You know what, again, thank you very much for, for having me on here. You know what, the only thing I would say of maybe of interest is now that we've hit this, this point with being able to, to invest in real estate and then invest in other things, I'm excited to say that I, I'm able to be growing our online business and being able to try other types of investments. 
hopefully your listeners are either in that spot now or uh, will be soon. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Burn Your Mortgage podcast. Besides being a podcast host and money coach, I'm also a licensed mortgage broker. If you or anyone you know, family, friends, co-workers, or neighbors could ever use any unbiased mortgage advice or a second opinion, feel free to reach out. You can reach me by email at seancooperwriter at gmail.com or you can call or text me at 647-867-3711. Also, be sure to head on over to www.seancooperwriter.com and sign up for my free weekly newsletter. As a small token of my appreciation, you'll be able to download my ultimate mortgage checklist on choosing the perfect mortgage. You can also sign up for a free one-on-one 15-minute money coaching consultation with yours truly. I look forward to hearing from you and helping you burn your mortgage sooner too. Once again, thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Burn Your Mortgage Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and leave a rating. Until next time, happy mortgage burning.